Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. Today is Monday, March 8th. My name is Owen, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, buddy? Mostly good. I read the second last chapter of Attack on Titan, which came out sometime Friday. And to be honest, I'm still traumatized horribly. (laughs) Okay. I I really don't know much. I saw a couple weeks ago, they're still doing Naruto? Like Boruto. Oh, okay. I don't even know what that is, but... It's fun. (laughs) It's it's actually kind of cool because... like the premise is well thought because it's like the opposite of Naruto. Like Naruto grows up with no family and becomes the person he is. Whereas like Boruto's dad is the Hokage and like has all, and so he's just too busy for him. And so he turns out a very different way and he's like hyper talented. Whereas Naruto was like not talented at all. (laughs) The premise is kind of cool. Okay. Interesting. No, but imagine naruto and then imagine like sasuke sakura are dead um well itachi had a nice story but like every villain has the most like heartwarming story you can't tell who to like and half the characters are dead (sighs) and you're just traumatized that's kind of where i'm at right now okay (laughs) Uh, how are you doing not too shabby uh same old on the weekend we had two big events kind of each night saturday and sunday and and I, I each of us will break down one of those um but i was on twitter this morning and and sifting through all the royals hubbub that was blasting up on my timeline i came across a tweet from one jj watt and i thought it would be an interesting discussion okay um would professional golfers be top tier mini golfers or would the obstacles even the playing field? What and and I just want to hear your take on it. What do you think? <laughs> I like better than the average person for sure. Yeah. I I'm I'm certain there's some sphere of highly competitive mini golf with phenomenal mini golf mm-hmm. players who just slay it. Yeah. Um I would rank guess that a professional golfer would rank seven or eight out of ten if like those professional mini golfers are tens yeah the thing that i first or this i guess the first thing i thought of would be like of course they'd be sick at it because it's just putting and unless they're like terrible putters these guys are the top end of their sport right uh, you could compare to like would a basketball player be good at like one of those carnival games where you have to shoot the the ball into the net that the rim is super bouncy on? And and I feel like the answer to that question would also be yes, because they just swish so many of their shots. Like they're just trained professionals at doing that one action. The other thing I thought of was, I think they'd be really thrown off by the, the clubs, right? Because I don't know if you've actually used a full-size putter before. Those things are actually pretty heavy <laughs> and they're big and bulky and and... If these mini golf putters are tiny, light, uh, they're, I don't know what they're made of, some sort of light metal, and the foam handle is just, it's just different, you know? So I think that would, because when you're that hyper-focused on a sport, any sort of change really affects them. Like, Tiger Woods would be so pissed whenever anyone made a noise when he was about to tee off. <laughs> right. So it's just, yeah, I thought it was a funny conversation. So I think, like you said, they'd be pretty good. 
but there'd also be some things that they struggle with. And and I think it would be really funny to watch kind of a professional athlete do one of those gimmick games. <laughs> I'd actually like to see uh, some professional pool players take it on. I think that would be the best crossover <laughs> sport, just like the knowledge of angles and I'm sure the dexterity and control would come in handy. Do you think, I don't know, would you think they'd actually shoot the ball? they flip the club over (laughs) yeah Yeah. the the knob yeah for those of you who are not watching on youtube we're we're miming uh what i don't even know what you call hitting the pool ball but cueing it i guess yeah 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 we're miming cueing the uh little golf ball mini golf ball with the putter that would be brilliant or like i think that would be the uh the ultimate shot like the one you pull out of your bag for like the really yeah. tight close like yeah. you're you need to put it through yeah. a hole of some tiny object to go yeah. into like one <laughs> it's like okay kid gloves are off and they like get on the golf mat and cue that up I so love ES- espn the ocho if you're listening we have a great idea for another pseudo sport yes. to put along cornhole and spitting and all those things <laughs> dodgeball all right we will get to some i guess if not more real uh more watched and more established sports uh we're gonna do combat corner first today uh and then follow it up with uh some nba storylines and and mostly talking about the all-star uh fiesta that was uh sunday night and i have my thoughts on that and then we'll wrap up with just a couple more quick notes but should be uh, mostly a two-sport event today and and uh, should have some content to take us through at least an hour of, of chit-chatting. So looking forward to getting to that. We'll take a quick break and come back for some combat corner. And we're back. Max is going to break down UFC 259. We had three title fights on the main card. Very, very exciting stuff. I even tuned in to watch one of the main card uh, fights, and I actually know the results of each of the other ones. So that's more than I can say about pretty much any uh, previous UFC event in my lifetime. Um, And actually, Max, I will tell you which fight I saw. So I I tuned in. I uh, played a little bit of code names with my friends over the weekend on Zoom, which was a fun event. I don't know if you've played that before. It's and then a little bit of Scriblio, which is basically like online Pictionary. Okay. Um, and it was late at night, and I'd had a couple of beers, and I thought, why not tune in, see if I can find. Uh, actually, we're gonna remove this part. Dana, don't listen. Um, I see if I could find somewhere to watch it, and I did, and uh, I got to see Islam Makachev against drew dober so when we get there we'll get there i have some thoughts uh but until then max break it down for us thank god i was afraid you were gonna say you saw the one before that santos versus rogic (laughs) which was for sure the biggest snoozer disappointment on the main card maybe even on the whole card and that's because it was a relatively high bar set uh, all the finishes and excitement that didn't materialize last week that maybe got a bit taken off the main card. It was all heavily concentrated in the prelims, which kicked off with five straight finishes, uh, even though we only have two slots on this show, really. 15 fights is still too many for the level of depth I'd want to get into, especially with the later ones. So 
just a couple of prelim notes before we get on to the main card. The first one I wanted to talk about was uh, the UFC debut of Carlos Alberg, which was also his fourth fight, which just shows how highly the UFC thought of this guy. Uh, coming from city kickboxing, so training alongside Israel Adesanya, Alexander Volkanovsky, uh, Dan Hooker, Brad Riddell, Kaikara France, who is next on the list to talk about. But the night did not kick off well for city kickboxing with Carlos Alberg getting knocked out by Kennedy. Uh, Nizachniku is what we're going to go with. I, that's not quite it. I'll just call him Kennedy. But it was one of the weirdest fights I've ever seen. Uh, Kennedy got almost got frozen by the speed and ferociousness of Ulberg to start the fight. He walked forward and threw nothing and got lit up. Like Ulberg was hitting him with like these four-piece combos, like rat-a-tat-tat-tat real quick. And just again and again, and Kennedy just kept shelling and it was strange because the criteria for the mixed martial arts stoppages is a lack of intelligent defense. And what he was doing is what you see a lot of guys do right before a ref stops a fight, like just shell up, not throwing anything back and just trying to block the damage. And Herb Dean even mentioned at one point, like show me something or I'm going to stop the fight. But I, it didn't look like he was ever seriously staggered. Like his legs were never jelly-like. He was able to move and respond whenever the flurries stopped. And it, it was the most effective rope-a-dope really I've seen in MMA. Ulberg, uh, the most damaging strike was like a heavy kick he threw in that first two minutes that kind of glanced off the head and if not wobbled, maybe staggered Kennedy. But like two minutes later, Kennedy finally started to throw some punches. And a minute or two into that, he started to land. And it was almost like he just realized, this guy can't hurt me. And he kept going back to the shell, but he started answering back with some of his own shots. And eventually just like after Alberg had thrown like over a hundred, 200 strikes I think Kennedy just backed him up and like caught him with a clean right hand it was just one of the weirdest swingiest fights I've ever seen like he it looked like he had 20 punches landed on him unanswered in the first two minutes so to come back from that was just absolutely bananas and (laughs) very strange fight but I thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, that that was the first one I caught. I watched the other ones the next day, but that was a nice one to tune into and start. Then, uh, speaking of comebacks, the city kickboxing gets a comeback, and Kaikara France gets a comeback in his fight against Rogerio Torin. Uh, Kai, a striker who's been submitted in the UFC before. Uh, Bondurin, a high-level jiu-jitsu practitioner who can also strike. And he mixed up his striking to get on the back of Car France early, beautifully. He non-stop with the pressure in the grappling, attacking 
rear naked choke a lot of times it looked like he was about to sink it in or had so much pressure over the neck that it was going to force a tap and had a totally dominant first round where Kai Car France finally got him off his back with 30 seconds and to have that long dominance at flyweight is just impressive because the guys are so powerful relative to their body size that they can really shuck and explode to their feet quite easily a lot of the time Kai eventually managed to do that and just came out with an intensity at the end of the round I think uh, Bondarine felt like he had that round in the bank was probably already thinking about the next round and just one of those reminders about how great the never know what's going to happen in mixed martial arts any fight could end at any time is Kai just walked him forward uh, started landing and caught him a couple times felt like he just got his timing and then threw this beautiful combo with his right hand where he went uppercut got the shell covering the straight uppercut and then went around it with a hook to drop Bondurine and finish it so great job of weathering adversity by Kaikara France a lot of guys were really excited about this guy early and he's had a couple setbacks but I've Spoiler, Israel Adesanya lost the main event, so I've gotten to hear him and his head coach talk a lot about adversity and say, no, we love losing because it me- it's an opportunity to go back to the drawing board to look at all the tape and the game plan and improve. And I think that's what you saw out of Kaikara France Saturday night, a guy who'd taken a couple losses, been in tough situations before, and that gave him perseverance and the intelligence to defend those grappling positions and the confidence to get out of them and get himself a victory. So great knockout by Kaikar France. Um, but the biggest men's flyweight momentum secured of the night went to Askar Askarov, this undefeated flyweight prospect who'd gone up the division fairly fluidly and continued to do so against Joseph Benavides, the number one contender and former title challenger isn't the right word because they were fighting for an empty belt, but one of the two number one, number two guys in the division. And part of its age, part of it, when you get two beatings like Figgy gave him, that's guys rarely come out and look their best after that you're kind of seeing something similar with Tony Ferguson I think in his fight against Charles Oliveira but Oscar Askarov looked phenomenal uh, just better on the feet better on the ground fantastic uh, trips and grappling pressure and Joseph Benavides is a great grappler and if he was going to have lost a step anywhere I would have thought it would be on the feet and he'd be able to find his mojo on the ground but Oscar dominated everywhere won a unanimous decision and I, I don't know when uh, Figgy and Moreno or not Moreno uh, Royval are going to run it back but you've got to think Oscar Askarov is next in line whenever that happens then quick thing the prelim headliner Dominic Cruz came back got his first win in a long time ever since I think his title up victory over TJ Dillashaw I don't even know when that was but 
mean, fairly vintage performance. Uh, I agreed with it. I mean, showed that footwork and movement is still there. The biggest takeaway I had actually was just some praise to Henry Cejudo because he he made it look easy against Cruz. He absolutely nullified all of Cruz's offense with his leg kicks. And you could tell Kennedy wanted to do that. He was throwing them, but had nowhere near the same amount of success, especially just in terms of Cruz being able to get his own offense off a lot more against Kennedy than he did against Cejudo. So sometimes performances just make other performances in the past look better. And I mean, I'm sure Cruz despite how much he doesn't believe ring rust is a thing, came in better tonight than he did for that Suhudo matchup is that he was just more fresher, longer time separated from injury, but Cruz still looked pretty good and leg kicks aren't just throw them and you win against him. So nice job for Suhudo. Uh then we get to the main card. I don't have a lot to say about Rakic versus Santos. It was a bit disappointing. Just you thought two wild men would really start swinging, but they both respected the power. And I don't think Santos had really ever been in there with anyone quite as on paper dangerous as Rakic. And obviously, as the commentary noted, he's coming off that leg surgery. Now, I have plenty of reason to have a huge barrel of salt uh, to take with whatever the commentary says at this point. So I'd love to, I haven't heard Santos's opinion on what happened that night. And if, if it was his legs not being the same, or if he just wanted to fight this terrifying finishing artist a little more cautiously than he does, either way, Rakic gets it done not a huge margin, but just the busier jab. Um, not a title shot worthy performance really, but like I was saying earlier, you have a couple prospects and the at the light heavyweight division slowly funneling their way into the top. Rakic continues to be one of them. Maybe you match him up with Magomed and Kalaev now. Maybe you take some consideration into the Prochenezo Reyes fight, but I think the light heavyweight matchmaking for the next title shot revolves around those three parties. So interested to see how the Reyes Prochenezo fight goes. I think that happens sometime in March. Ankalaev also name in the conversation at this point, and I'm excited to see how that shapes up after Teixeira gets his much deserved shot. All right. We're at Makashev Dober. Tell me what you thought. Okay, so the very first thing, because I tuned in, and the very first thing that I noticed was they're fighting in, like, the Ultimate Fighter setup. Yeah. And so I don't know what I was expecting, but I, for some reason I thought they'd be fighting in empty arenas, which is just silly and expensive. And um, it is interesting that you have that much more intimate setting where you could hear – Dobert's coach is screaming at him the entire fight where he's like, don't let him get the right hand or like scramble or whatever. Right. And, and some of those things I didn't really understand, but I could still catch because it was so clearly uh, shouted in the audio. And I thought that was, I actually kind of liked that vibe. Obviously crowds just make everything better with their reactions, but um, 
for those pure fans like yourself, it, it must be interesting to sometimes hear some of that coaching going on during the fight itself. And that's what I was saying. Uh, we had this conversation a couple weeks back about the fan noises in arenas. And I have, I have this to compare the experience of hockey and basketball to and to say, hey, it does work. And it is really interesting to not fake that audio. I was too distracted anytime I heard Habib talk, but I guess Dober's corner must have been going too. Yes, yeah. Uh, that, that was another takeaway that I had was I didn't know Khabib was actually coaching Islam and, and there and present. I just thought he was, I don't know, watching from home or hanging out, but I didn't know he was on the coaching team. So it was a little weird to see him standing in the picture afterwards. <laughs> My sister texted me just, wait, is that? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's cool to see the new chapter of his life starting to unfold. Okay. And then, yeah, I, the fight itself is a fight that's definitely for more of the hardcore fans because obviously, like, when you want, when you have a casual fan such as myself, and, and less so for me because I can appreciate some of the artistry behind it, but people want to see people throw hands, right? That is, the striking is, is probably the most exciting part for many of the casual fans. Um, and probably for myself included, it's, it's just cool to see guys do different things with the striking, but I can appreciate when someone absolutely dominates on the ground and the way that Islam was getting to the ground. I, I didn't necessarily notice it right away, but then when they were talking about it and breaking it down on the broadcast, I thought it was really fascinating. Uh, he used a couple of different trips, a couple of dis different positioning, like either up against the fence or like making Dober think about one thing and then he's getting the inside hook. So just interesting to see those things and and kind of something to keep in my reserve in case I ever need to use something like that <laughs> because yeah. um it is it is interesting to see how effective such a small movement can be but it's been trained over and over again and then once they're on the ground it again right it's not striking so it can be seen as a little bit more boring because it's a lot of hugging and a lot of like hand movement and couple body shots and all that but it seemed pretty one-sided uh, and yeah, I'll get you to, you can give some more, uh, sophisticated analysis, but it was interesting to tune in for the setting and you can definitely see that Islam, at least in, in that one element is, uh, is dominant and looks to be moving up the ranks. <laughs> yes. Uh, more or less it, I mean, I don't have the jujitsu or wrestling sambo pedigree to tell you exactly what islam did once it was on the ground to your point the reason khabib became such a star in my opinion i mean i feel like i jumped on the hype train bandwagon a little before like it was really the connor fight where it started to uh rocket into like people who don't even follow the UFC knowing who he is, but he had two fights that really, I think, kind of cemented that. And they're the fights that the UFC posted every time he was fighting free on YouTube. And that was the Michael Johnson and Edson Barboza ones. I'll, they might be free right now. I'll send you one uh, sometime just so you can, I'd be interested to hear thoughts on it because those, those were grappling performances that generate fans and hype they were absolute maulings and they were the basis of habib's stardom his ability to just take you to the ground and then tie the most experienced grapplers 
in or some of the best anti-wrestling grapplers in the world up into helplessness and then get himself to a position where he generates like insane amounts of force and just relentlessly punishes we saw some of that from islam but we didn't we didn't see the punches we saw at one point like a very similar position that habib had against edson barboza where on uh, dober's back was against the cage his legs were sitting out straight and islam got on top wrapped his legs up and then was had a wrist grip on one but and i remember reading an interview with khabib's dad a few years back where he said i would say islam has 95 percent of the grappling of khabib and whereas khabib has 80 90 percent of the striking of islam and yeah, he didn't maul him with ground and pound, but he certainly dominated him. The most entertaining fight part for me, like you said, were the takedowns. Just so efficient, so quick, and so set up one position onto the next. And that that's the really beautiful thing about that Dagestani style, the efficiency, the fact that they just put you in position after position where you have to defend with all your strength and they will just eventually work their way to a position where it's effortless for them they're not burning crazy amounts of energy just to get you down and that's why they can do it for so long but yeah dom i didn't even realize it was a submission attempt and then i saw dober tap and then in hindsight you can watch him back you can see it but just crazy scary shoulder strength and the finish is huge like a really nice feather in the cap almost better that it's a third round position finish because it just speaks to the workman likeness of the performance uh, just position after position after position of like relentless pressure and then literally just pressure ending the fight like just getting him to a position where he's defenseless and then putting so much pressure on him that he almost choked him out with it so beautiful performance from Makashev like you said definitely rising up the ranks and I almost I might maybe Friday use a bit of combat corner to do like some whole division matchmaking for the lightweight because it's such a it's such a convoluted mess with so many different prospects and intrigues but Islam's got to be there. It's just a question of activity. If he can fight maybe three times this 2021, at least one more time, that's how he works his way to the title shot. It's really just a question of activity for him. But he is at that point where he deserves a big name to really cement the case. <laughs> oh. Okay, moving on, we get to the three title fights. All of them interesting and disappointing in their own way. Uh, none more so than Aljamain Sterling versus Peter Piotr Jan, which ends with Piotr Jan being disqualified for throwing an illegal knee to the head and Aljamain Sterling earning the title. Um, I guess I'll talk about the fight itself and then the disqualification so Aljo came out with heavy volume in that first round and he set a pace 
but Jan stole that first round with a beautiful right hand on two of the three judges' scorecards where I think the strikes were something like high 20s to low teens in Aljo's favor in that first round. So it was interesting to see the judges' scorecards. Two gave it to Jan for that knockdown, which I would agree with. Then that pace helped Aljo get the second round where he set just kind of clinched him up for most of it in takedown attempts and then Jan started to take over the third round and it was looking like every Piotr Jan fight he comes out slow he has power in his hands that make guys hesitant makes his reads and just never stops that like slow steady pressure and it might not seem that threatening in the first couple minutes of the fight but as it goes on it just you find your back up against the wall and it was starting to look like that Jan dominated Aljo in the grappling really I mean he stuffed pretty much every takedown Sterling had and took Sterling down multiple times which made it really interesting that he wasn't willing to enter the guard of Sterling because that was a big part of, I think, his victory in the Jose Aldo fight, just surprising Aldo, stepping into his guard and blasting him with ground and pound. I suppose the element of surprise, not really there the same in the Sterling fight as the Aldo fight, since the Aldo fight was his last one, so Sterling knew what to expect, but still took him down multiple times, was on the back wearing on him, and the punches were starting to connect, starting to get way ahead in the strikes, and it felt like every yawn fight, like it was going to be a matter of time before he found the finish. And it was getting more and more there in that fourth round until that illegal knee hit. And I'm not really clear on uh, what exactly the corner exchange looked like. I can't quite tell what they're saying to him. Like they almost have this conversation and Jan's in a position where he can't really see whether Sterling's hands, knees are on the ground, how many points of contact he has. So, but it doesn't quite seem 100% evident that the corner said, yes, throw a knee. It sounds like they might've just said hit him, which you hit with your fists in that position might be what they intended. Either way, he threw that knee and it was clear Sterling couldn't stand for minutes. So they have no choice but to stop the fight. And under the rules, if you like, if the fight is stopped that way for an illegal move that is blatantly illegal, which it was, especially since the ref in that sequence reminded Jan he's down, then the rules say you have to award the belt for that. So their hands are kind of tied obviously a rematch has to happen which isn't a bad thing it's certainly going to be interesting uh and there's just the the ironic most ironic part is probably that uh aljo kept calling yawn a paper champ and now he has the belt wrapped around his waist in a way like that so i'm really curious what the build-up of this is going to look like we've already seen some mixed responses from the two fighters and i mean dc had a point on the broadcast aljo's gonna get paid this next fight whatever else happens you just you wonder what the timeline is gonna look like because i mean he looked 
badly concussed on the mat there. He tried to stand up at one point and just couldn't. So I, they, but Bantamweight is such a deep loaded division with so many contenders that they want to get it moving. They're talking about Dillashaw Sandhag and fight for the next title challenger. And then there's so many other guys. So I hope they find a way to balance uh, having keeping the division moving, but making sure it's a fully healthy Aljo stepping in there to fight Jan for a second time. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, you had that fight where Stipe got knocked out against DC after coming like four or five months later after fighting in Ganu, and you just don't want to see that be what determines. But Jan was winning the first fight, and they've got to make it happen sooner rather than later. So six, seven months, I think, is probably right, as long as all the health and safety observance on Aljo looks good. And it was weird to hear John Jones chiming in on Twitter on this one. I mean, he had a busy night with his fingers, but saying Aljo's should have or won fair and square when uh, he was in that same position and could have lost his belt to Anthony Smith in the exact same way. I don't understand what he was thinking when he tweeted that. Moving on to the co-main event, Amanda Nunes versus Megan Anderson went more or less exactly as expected. Uh, I talked as Amanda gonna strike or is she gonna grapple? She did both and just reminded everyone why she's levels above anyone else in either of those weight classes. Her striking and grappling just enough to win almost every situation and make up for any deficiency in one or the other. And I think she's the first person to beat Anderson on the feet so give her some extra credit there Holly Holm didn't do it uh Felicia Spencer they both beat her grappling uh everyone she had struck with Anderson had given problems knocked out I don't know what to say about the Kat Zinganu one but she didn't get beat on the feet by Kat so credit to Amanda I mean just made a couple of reads, watched Anderson, and then with Anderson trying to keep everything really straight, just found that like looping hook over and used her athleticism to explode in there and time it, and then made Megan a grappler who took a poor shot, forced her, shoved her to the floor, and then just position after position, throwing some ground and pound. Some uh, inverted triangle armbar. I don't know if it was the arm or the choke that made her tap, but pure dominance by the lioness. I, it's a it's a problem that you never really think you're going to have in combat sports, and you can't imagine in any other division really, other than women's bantamweight, featherweight, where there's literally nothing you can match her up with that's exciting. Like you. They talk about the Shevchenko fight, but like Nunes, we've seen it happen twice. Nunes is the bigger girl, and Shevchenko's not 
really that kind of knockout artist who can just change the fight with one strike. She has to be in her flow, in her rhythm to get her finishes. And Nunez just has such an athletic advantage over Shevchenko that I, I don't see Shev finding her flow and rhythm. So it, if Nunez said, like, I want to finish this girl, it gets a little more interesting if you know she's going to come out like swinging, but Nunez, the fight IQ is there to win the fight in like the most risk-free way she can. So honestly, that fight really does nothing for me. And Shevchenko is going to be fighting Andrade, I think, in April, which is actually an exciting matchup. So I don't see it. <laughs> There's absolutely nothing in the women's bantamweight division. There is no women's featherweight division to speak of. The I feel like you almost need to start looking for those like freak show things to have even a moment of doubt for Amanda Nunes. Like find a hundred and sixty pound woman and get her in there with their like the UFC is not going to do cross promotional things to get a Kayla Harrison or a Chris Cyborg, but those are the only two women I can think off the top of my head where I don't just instantly know Amanda Nunez is going to come out and totally dominate them. Like, fuck man, do you give her four opponents in one night? I, I just, Nunez can keep stepping in there and keep making money and she should, but I can't imagine having a moment of suspense at this point. And I guess that's how it is for a lot of dominant champions till it isn't, but I think this takes it to another level. So then where does that put her in the, like, I don't know, in your Mount Rushmore of fighters? Is she up there with the greats? Of course. It's just, it's so hard to compare her to the men because... I mean, no man will ever achieve in the UFC what she's achieved because you can't. The divisions are too loaded with talent. I mean, the UFC isn't going to make that logistical decision to pause divisions to let someone fluctuate between the two. It's only because there were all of two women's featherweights and no... I mean, Amanda Nunes has beaten every woman that's ever held the woman's bantamweight strap. Not to mention there's absolutely no one who interesting challengers in the division who have really show anything that even make you think they could beat her. Uh, yeah, I... And you do... You have to discount the opponents compared to, like what George St. Pierre has accomplished, what Jose Aldo has accomplished, what John Jones has accomplished, what Stipe Miocic has accomplished. Maybe Anderson Silva's a little more comparable. Like you've guys like Rich Franklin, uh, Chris Lieben, Dan Henderson. So I, even then just opponents like I know Ronda Rousey has that all that hype behind her, but frankly, her strike, like beating her in striking, is not a Mount Rushmore feat. Um, Holly Holm is a problem for most women's bantamweights, but she doesn't have the. I guess knocking her out like Nunes did was one of the most impressive things she's done. The cyborg win is huge, so she's up there, but. 
if any man had accomplished what she's done, like knocking out every other champion ever in a division, getting a second belt, and then going back and forth to defend both belts, they'd be the unquestioned GOAT. And you can't say that about Nunez for me, just because those divisions aren't comparable at all. But League of Her Own, for sure. She's just, you've got to almost isolate it when you talk about her, I think. All right, moving on to the main event, Jan Blahovich versus Israel Adesanya. Uh, I'm curious, did you... My world is, like, what the hell was that fight commentary? Is that even a storyline in, like, the mainstream sports or not really? Uh... I didn't see much about it. I actually, even like this fight for me, it didn't really show itself too much compared to some of the other ones on the main card, which was really interesting. Um, I guess because everyone was really looking for the one result and didn't get it. And so then uh, it kind of got pushed to the background and some other storylines emerged. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is it, they're looking for a knockout one of two ways, like either Jan continuing that ridiculous recent stretch of knockouts he's been on, which would be huge, or even huger would have been Izzy doing what he's done to everyone else pretty much, knocking out Jan. So a bit of a letdown if one of those two results were your expectations, but really technical three rounds of striking that I... I'm definitely going to have to watch again before I give my final opinion on it. But first time in the UFC, we've seen Izzy uh, kind of out, almost outstruck. It was very, very close. But Jan landed more in, I think, all of the rounds. The jab he was landing was really clean. Uh, he checked the leg kicks beautifully. That is what I'm really curious about the significant strike counts. I want to know if the kicks that uh, Jan checked got counted as significant strikes for Izzy, because if they did, then the disparity was even bigger than it looks like on paper right now. Uh, They're not very good at calculating and tabulating the leg strikes I usually find. And yeah, you, you saw the frame, I think, be almost equal between the two fighters and the power be enough to threaten that Izzy couldn't quite be as reckless and as free-flowing and offensive as he likes to be sometimes, which then sets up reactions for him to time and do what he does on. But you also saw a really smart striking defense from Jan where he was always moving, always reacting, and just never gave Izzy anything to make a statement with and get in the zone. I mean, I'm not saying Yon outstruck Izzy, like, totally. It was very close, like I said. All three of those rounds, I felt I'd struggled to score. I definitely gave the first two to Jan. The third, I think two of the judges gave to Izzy, which I think that was probably his best striking round. He looked like the most uh, significant strike he landed came, but still very close. 
and then the grappling sealed it in the fourth and fifth rounds by Jan, which was a bit where the disappointment kind of came in for me. Jan didn't was happy to take the fight on points. He didn't really try and hunt a submission or open up with the ground and pound over those two rounds of grappling. The takedowns were beautiful. No one's Martin Vittori's landed one takedown on Adesanya. And other than that, this was the first time we've seen it in his career. Mixed it up with the striking, got Izzy reacting, and then closed in on the takedown and very tight body locks and a double leg, I think, to get it. And then, yeah, he stayed super tight once the grappling came, which was kind of the biggest letdown of the fight for me. That he wasn't willing to posture up and try and do some more damage. I think the 10-8 was very undeserved in that fifth round, like three rap minutes of grappling control with like seven seconds of ground and pound at the end of the fight, I don't think should be a 10-8. I did have Jan winning 49-46 though. But yeah, I mean not quite the result anyone was expecting a great first title defense for Jan though to like I said carve out his reign and sounds like he's going to fight Glover next which I'm really happy about he said six months which that's why I like to see champ defends the belt twice a year every six months uh, foregoing any injury or any of that stuff Adesanya gonna move back to middleweight for now and but I loved the way he handled the loss. Like he gave credit where it was due without bringing down his own ego and obviously like still feeling high on himself where he should being a little salty about the lay and pray style in the later rounds, feeling good about stand up, but giving credit to the defense, not making any excuses, but not really affected by the loss in any tangible way, not overly attached to the zero on his record and feeling like he's going to come back better. Um, made me more of a fan of Izzy, honestly, the way he handled that loss. And then I mentioned this at the start, but the commentary was really troubling for this fight. They just gave so much credit to Izzy and that's, you walk into the fight with these narratives, but you have to adjust your expectations and understandings as what they're based off of adjusts within the fight. And the expectation and understanding was if Jan tries to kickbox with Izzy, he's going to get lit up and probably stopped. But somewhere into the second round, you realize that wasn't what was happening. Jan was land. Like I think the biggest striking gap came in that first round and Jan was checking the leg kicks beautifully. Like I said, his jab was money. He mixed it up to the body really well with that jab. He was switching stances and yes, he was fainting, reacting to everything Izzy gave him, but it was to everything. So there were no holes for Izzy to time with those reactions because it's when you faint and Jan doesn't react that he goes, okay, now I can set this up this strike up and sneak it in. Uh, none of his normal, like, sneaky head kicks got in there. And the commentary was talking like Jan was getting outstruck and losing. Like, if you 
listen to that fight on commentary and you didn't watch what happened on the screen, you would have thought Izzy won it 48-47 off those first three striking rounds. But all three judges gave Jan two of the three rounds. And it's not often that I feel like I side with the judges over the commentators, but it was one of those nights. And it was just... It was making me as a fan question what I was seeing because I was watching it. I was seeing Jan like get have a slightly more dominant edge in the striking, and there were there was none of that being recognized by the commentators. It, they were just not praising or saying anything about anything Jan landed, getting very hyped about everything Izzy landed, and talking about the fight as it was playing out, as if it was going all for Izzy, and it wasn't. And man, I just, it's so weird, Joe Rogan's position in the UFC, because you will, there's nothing like that in any other professional sport where you have someone who does their job as an analyst for like three, four days of the year. I don't know what exactly his routine, sorry, not for the year, for the month. I don't know what exactly his routine is on the pay-per-view cards he works, like when he starts preparing for it, how much he's researching. I don't know what, how much of an eye he's keeping on fight nights other, other parts of the year. But like, if you're a professional hockey analyst or basketball analyst, you are always that you're always following the sport, you're working several nights a week. And on your off nights, you're still engaged. And so when it comes time to step up to the mic, you've got this head that is 100% in the zone. And that's what gives you the expertise to fill that analyst role. And that's not what Joe Rogan does. He podcasts every month, he doesn't go to pay-per-views outside the US. And then he when there is a pay-per-view in the U.S., he steps in and steps into that analyst role for a couple of days to research and the night of and then stops. And I, I just don't think that brings out the highest quality of analyst analysis and commentary that you can get. And it's if the UFC wants to be a professional sport, they've got to do better, I think. I mean, it's... he's a draw for the UFC. He's a part of their branding, but I, I think degraded the product the, and Cormier had issues too, but I felt like he was giving a little more credit to Jan, at least for the leg kick check-in and some of the jabs he was landing. And he kind of realized like, Oh, Jan is probably going to win this fight when the grappling came into play. So yeah, I, I was pretty unhappy with the commentary, and it's not the first time. I mean, the Habib Iaquinta fight was probably the worst one, and Rogan for sure has his moments. Like, then the Habib Connor fight, he was the voice of reason, the dominant Cruz. But I, I just wonder how much longer the UFC wants to retain him as this uh, part time analyst because I, I, think you have to be locked in for most of the year to do it at the highest level and that's he's got so much going on why would he be so 
yeah, I wanted to end with that because it was, it's just frustrating. Like you question your own read of the fight. It's really hard not to be influenced by what you're hearing. And sometimes I turn the commentary off, but I want to hear the strikes. I like to hear the corner. Uh, I, I'd love an option to hear the fight without the commentary. That would be primo. But yeah. Uh, I think that's all the ranting I have. So maybe not the result you're expecting in the main event, but I think both divisions have a clear path forward, which is great. You've got Till matched up with Vittori and Whitaker matched up with Costa in the middleweight division. You think one of those four guys getting the next title shot, even though Izzy's beaten three of those four already. You just wonder, maybe Costa's the only one who couldn't earn a title shot with a win. He'd probably need at least one more. You look at Whitaker, who was in a similar position, and now he's about to earn a third potential victory. Till's the one Izzy wants, but he's going to have to do something special. Vittori certainly would be interesting based on how relatively close their first fight was compared to most of Izzy's other middleweight matchups. Glover next for Jan with uh, Rakic, Prochenezo, and Kalaev all knocking at the door. Both divisions in a pretty good place moving forward and overall, I think, a successful pay-per-view night though plenty of uh, deliberating decisions need to be made in the matchmaking department moving forward. Thanks for listening, and sorry for all these brutal sniffles and wipes and pauses. And we're back for our NBA storylines. We had the All-Star festivities happen all in one night yesterday, and here to Bring us all the highlights and tell us about it. Owen, take it away. Thank you. Uh, you and I both guessed one of the winners of a respective competition. So we'll we'll take that to the bank. And um, I think I should have gone two for three, but we'll get to that uh, briefly. We're going to kick off uh, with the skills competition. Uh, they interviewed Chris Paul twice before the beginning of this competition. And in the second one, Dwayne Wade brought up... Uh, CP had been 0 for 4 so far in skills competitions and Chris was saying how it was always one thing he's like I missed the layup one year and I just had bad luck and of course what happens he nails the pass him and Vucevic going down the court and he bricks the layup <laughs> he's got to take it again uh, really throws him off and he bricks some threes and ends up losing and uh, <laughs> I'm sure he caught a lot of flack for that from his teammates for, for missing the layup it was funny um, so continual, uh, I guess, skills competition curse for Chris Paul as uh, my boy, Damanis Sabonis, takes it in a battle of the bigs uh, against Nikola Vucevic in the final. It's kind of funny to watch the big guys lumber up and down the court, but really impressive to see the type of skill that these guys have, that they're going up against these smaller guards. And like, I don't know, Luca, you, you j- just throw it aside because he mailed in the whole night. Like it looked like he was not trying at all for anything. Fair enough. <clears throat> Wait, so he, I didn't hear, I heard this on podcast that he played 32 minutes in the all-star game, which is a lot. Was he to, just invisible for your eyes? Yeah, he's basic. I felt like he was just doing cardio, like <laughs> just moving up. And then he he shot a couple of deep threes, like he made some buckets, but he, it's, it seems like he did nothing the entire night. So, and that's fine. That was a theme. Like 
him and LeBron uh, do a lot for their respective teams. And it looks like they both really took the night off. Even if they were there, they weren't really there. Um, but yeah, just look like in the skills competition, he was not trying at all. He didn't even get out of his warmups to do it. So <laughs> just <laughs> funny little thing. Uh, moving on to the three-point contest. I think this is probably the most exciting part of the whole night uh, because it went down to the last shot between Mike Conley and Steph Curry, who you picked as a winner. And Steph pulls it out on the very last ball. Uh, he also, in his previous run, set a new uh, three-point contest record with 31. Now, I think it's a little bit skewed because now they have the two Mountain Dew balls that are worth three, and they have the whole money rack where each ball is worth two for one of the racks. So the scores just have the potential to be higher. Um, so take it with a grain of salt, but like the the where he hit 31, he won on, on he hit every single ball in his last rack, and some of them like the net barely moved. It's just so like some people find the three point contest boring, but when it's Steph Curry doing it, like you, you it's mesmerizing because he's just so incredible uh, at what he does, and it looks so effortless. Like he was picking up the trophy. I th- I think it was Kenny was saying like he didn't even break a sweat, and it is like if anyone has ever tried to do a three-point contest before, it is tiring. Like you have to be in a rhythm. You have to make sure you get them all down in a minute and you're moving and you like, it's not the most strenuous thing, but it's the pressure of it can be very uh, exhausting. And Steph made it look super, super easy. (laughs) To me, that's when I do tune in for like an all-star festivities weekend or whatnot, the skills competition that, get at like one pure part of the sport one specific thing and really let the all-star competitors like actually fully uh, lock in to doing their best in that one pure thing because they're not going to give 100% in the game itself you don't want them to but something like a three-point contest they can actually try their best and not mail in my all-time favorite all-star event is still uh in the nhl the one they used to do where it was like sudden death breakaways because like for the most part the players were actually doing their best to score and so yeah cool but praise to seth death yep uh and then we had the dunk contest which a lot of people did not like and for obvious reasons, it, the dunk contest has slowly become the show off the G League player or the end of the bench guy um, because they're the only ones who will A, like take it on because there's the injury risk and B, like some of the top guys don't want to do it because it's not cool anymore. So if it's not cool, the NBA players aren't going to do it. Um, they only had three participants. They tried, So it went really, really quick, which I actually appreciated. Sometimes I find there's too much time in between each uh, competitor going but this one moved along along at a pretty solid pace and the best dunk of the night was the very first dunk and I don't think anyone was ready for it but Cassius Stanley uh, throws a ball up goes right to left between the legs and finishes over his head it was really really clean really well done and he gets a 44 on it and everyone's sitting there going Wait, what just happened because I, th- I think the judges just were not ready for that to be the very first dunk it was really really nice and uh, Obi Toppin and Anthony Simons follow up with some some dunks that were nice. And and uh, Anthony Simons really showed off his bounce. Like his head was well above the rim on 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 both of his dunks, or the ones that at least that he had to get up for. Um, but I think 
Stanley really thrown off by having the lowest score on the best dunk out of the three. Uh, I think it rattled him because his next attempt was probably going to be one of the craziest dunks we'd seen in the dunk contest. He tried to do the Aaron Gordon dunk, but he was setting himself up where he threw the lob off the floor and then tried to go under his legs uh, going right to left. And and he ended up uh, trying it a couple times, missed, and then ended up doing kind of a more boring like tomahawk dunk because uh, once you miss a couple times, then it's like, okay, this isn't cool anymore. I got to do something else. And uh, that really, that was tough for him. I think he got 37 on that one and it knocked him out. But I think if he had the highest score on that first dunk, he would have had a little bit more confidence and maybe would have gone with something that he knew for sure he could have made. And he would have got through the final round and might've shown off something special. So I feel bad for him in that regard. But again, it's just the dunk contest. Anthony Simons wins uh, with the two final dunks being really, really boring and i love how they're saying they they called it the d wave rule so they changed the rules in the final this year after d wade screwed over aaron gorn with the nine last year um where they just have both competitors do a dunk and then they just choose the winner rather than uh scoring each dunk it's just one goes and then the other and then the judges choose one or the other which i i like because then it prevents you getting that Dwayne wade nine that really screws over and uh changes like who should have won and who was deserving. So they just pick one or the other. And and Simons goes up for this. Uh, I, I actually, I didn't mind it. It was a little, a little bit flair because he had no emotion besides that one, like two seconds of where he goes up, he kisses the rim almost and, and dunks it in, which was kind of impressive. Cause if you can get your lips up to the rim, that means you're really flying. Um, and then Obi Toppin, I, Honestly, can't even remember what his last dunk in the final was, but if, oh, he went through the legs from kind of a foot in from the free throw line, which was nice, but we, we saw, we've seen Zach Levine do it from the free throw line. So it was a little less impressive in that regard. Um, yeah, those guys showed off their bounce, but nothing super exciting to jump out overall. The whole weekend was a little underwhelming, but you can't really hate too much because of the circumstances and no fans and, Usually you have all those celebrities there. It's just it, like the whole weekend itself is usually more of a, an event. And it, when you're trying to do it all in the span of like five hours, as opposed to having the celebrity game on Friday, the skills competition Saturday, and then the game on Sunday, it's just different. And so you can't, can't be too hard on them because uh, this was mostly a money grab. And I thought for the expectations, it was fine, if not a little bit underwhelming. And that leads us into the game, which in itself was probably, um, yeah, it was just, it was straight up boring <laughs> for the most part. There are some take- takeaways you could have. Like, I think Zion is, I don't know what it is, but the, it seems like playing in, in all-star game saps his like superhuman powers. Cause we remember last year in the rising stars challenge, he was trying to throw down all these crazy dunks near the end of the game. And he kept bricking them all. And then in this one, he got set up for about three or four different lobs and he just didn't finish them. And he had one where he laid it in, like just, (laughs) it looked like he, he lost some of his ability to jump and ability to finish. It was just funny. Uh, And I'm sure there were a lot of kids at home who were disappointed when he wasn't doing some crazy alley-oop stuff that he used to do in high school. So just funny. I thought that'll be something to follow in a couple of years. Cause you know, he's going to be in the all-star game pretty frequently if uh if the all-star game is just a, a zion stopper in itself <laughs> i guess uh, some of chris paul's energy got a bit contagious 
Yeah, I guess so. Except in the All-Star game itself, Chris Paul becomes more of an assist guy. I think he finished like one assist shy now. So he's got to try and make one more All-Star game. I think he's one assist shy of Magic Johnson for the most assists in All-Star games. Because um, none of his passes in the fourth quarter led to any buckets. But uh, he's right there. He, I think he, I don't know, like 10 or assists in the All-Star game are really hard to <laughs> quantify because it's either guys throwing alley-oops or throwing like stretch passes for dunks. Um, there were a lot of three-pointers in this one. Uh, the game score went to 170. So if that says anything, um, Team LeBron won all four quarters. So I guess uh, LeBron is the greatest like general manager of all time, knows how to pick a uh, the best all-star team and like he truly did like his team was so much better than Kevin Durant's it was ridiculous I kind of saw that coming I didn't follow the teams too closely but when I saw LeBron's first pick Giannis Kevin's first pick Kyrie it was like okay <laughs> yeah and and obviously Kevin's team struggled because him Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons all didn't play for contact and reasons so that that gave them a pretty big hit to the team but <laughs> It was it was not really close. Like Curry and Damian Lillard were flying all over the place, just hitting threes from re- like they had a half court competition in the midst of like the second quarter, and they both hit one. It was ridiculous. And then you've got like Giannis is the guy who's like trying not to make it seem like he's trying. And so whenever he's getting a rebound, he's like, "Oh, I'm gonna get free two points, point put back dunks." He had 22 points by like halfway through the second quarter and he hit this crazy step back three um over yoke or over i don't know who it was but then Jokic and the entire team was freaking out on the bench because it was like Giannis hits a step back three never happened before he hit two bank three pointers he went 16 for 16 in the game didn't miss a shot (laughs) and that's why he won the mvp because um it seemed he was trying to make it seem like he wasn't trying but it, it looked like he was trying and it was funny uh it was this one was a little bit disappointing because last year, you know, like it came down to the wire and there were guys playing defense. And uh, there's that great photo of Giannis guarding LeBron late, and you've got like Spike Lee and all those guys on the sidelines. And this game, just like LeBron's team was so dominant, they had a 20 point lead going into the fourth, and you add the 24. And then with Curry and Dame just hitting these ridiculous three pointers, it, it just, yeah, it didn't really get close. Um, you were hoping that. Team KD can mount some sort of comeback, but it wasn't meant to be. And Damian Lillard hits an absurd half-court three-pointer to end the game um, after Steph missed his. There was a little uh, action between those two. Even though they were on the same team, they are kind of a a similar type build of player and similar type role on their respective teams. And so uh, there's a I think there is a, a healthy competitive rivalry between those two. And if they had been on opposite teams, I think it would have shown up even more so. But uh, it was kind of a a measuring contest who could hit it from further away. <laughs> I have heard comments from each of them about the other during this regular season, just when one's getting compared to the other. And then has I think it was Curry who was like, they were saying, oh, I think Lillard's like stepped up to Curry's level. And like Curry had one of his 40 points nights and was just like, yeah, I, I, I took that a little personally. Oh yeah, they they've been going at each other now for about eight seasons straight, um, and yeah, it's been fun to watch those two grow because they both they have the longest both of them have the longest range in the league by far. Like they're kind of the only two guys where you expect them to hit those crazy logo shots consistently, um, and it was fun to see like they actually were shooting from half court, and you actually were like, 
expecting each one to go in, even though there were a couple that didn't. It was, yeah, just unbelievable, like, talent that these two have. Yeah. Okay. That kind of wraps up the All-Star game for me. Uh, It might have been a waste of my time to spend whatever, four hours watching it, but um, I did, and now we're here, and there were some stuff to glean from it, but overall, just a fun event that made the NBA some money, which is very much needed going ahead if we want to have a flat cap going forward a couple of years and having the guys make the money that they deserve. So important to have that done, but we will move on to some storylines coming out of the all-star game and heading into the second half of the season. Firstly, Blake Griffin, uh, we mentioned that he was bought out by the Pistons and he has decided to sign with the Brooklyn Nets for the rest of the season. Um, If you had told me, even like four years ago, that a team was going to have Harden, Kyrie, Katie, and Blake Griffin on it, you would say, I don't know, is is that like the all-star team? <laughs> is that uh, Warriors 2.0? But yeah, just, but more like iso ball warriors rather than <laughs> movement warriors. Uh, the difference is now that Blake Griffin is very much grounded after the 100 surgeries he's had and the stuff he's had to go through. Um the Nets already have like a Jeff Green and a Bruce Brown that they run at center, which provide a lot of what Blake will give them, which is like the playmaking, a little bit of outside shooting. Um, so the only thing I can really see here is if they expect Blake to actually have been conserving himself and waiting to get bought out slash traded, and now he is going to turn it up a little bit athletically, but it just there's been no signs of it. So it's really, I don't know, it's a little bit interesting and, I would say, what is the word that I'm looking for here? I just question why he chose to sign with Brooklyn. I guess he's ring chasing, right? That would be the obvious thing. But I think he could have gone to a team that needed him a little bit more for what he provides because it seems like Brooklyn already has that. And so I don't know how many minutes he's going to get playing for this team. What do you think defensively he does, if anything, or he's gonna same as those players you mentioned yeah like i i don't think he gives you anything more than jeff green or bruce brown maybe a little bit more size than either of those guys that you could put on like one of those more i don't know one of those bigs because they have they really have no one to guard joel and be like not even deandre jordan but maybe if a team goes small and and you need uh, Blake to be in there to guard the other team's smaller five. I just, yeah, it just, they have the guys who fit that role. So it didn't really make sense for me. Yeah. I guess one more, uh, weapon in the holster for come playoff time. I, I have watching the Raptors when you don't have a number one center, just keep the rotation going and that you see like Baines and Boucher do their best coming in small minutes or like against the other team starter off the bench without the expectations. So I do think there's something to be said for just having multiple guys to rotate through the position. If you don't have that number one guy in the position, the more the merrier then. Yeah. Well, speaking of the Raptors, the next uh, storyline we got on tap is uh, Kyle Lowry over the weekend sold his home in Toronto, uh, which does not bode well for where he's expected to be by the end of the season. Um, you can partially think that that's just because the Raptors are in Tampa. And so at, and at the end of the season, he is a free agent. So either way, if he's not traded, he 
it seems like he may be signing somewhere else. Um, it's a little bit upsetting to see this story come through because obviously we love Kyle here and he'll probably have a statue and, and lots of people uh, lobbying the committee to get him into the Hall of Fame. Uh, probably the greatest Raptor of all time, just legacy-wise and uh, full career-wise and what he really has meant to this team and finally bringing a championship to Toronto. Um, the very cold analytical side of me hopes he gets traded and does not walk in free agency because you do want to get some assets in return, uh, especially if it's going to a team like a, a Philadelphia or a Denver um, or a Los Angeles Clippers. They, they, they do have a couple things that I would want. Like maybe we get bull bull back in a trade or a little bit draft capital um, Philadelphia. I would love to get Matisse Thibel from them in exchange for Lowry because Thibel is like a defensive uh he's kind of I don't know it's hard to really find a comparison but you know it's like I don't know Luka Doncic right he's just naturally gifted at being an offensive superstar Thibel has the gifts to be like a natural defensive superstar and just be like this absurd out of this world instinct guy who can guard anyone um so it'd be really fun to have him on a Raptors system where they already play great defense and I think Nick Nurse could turn him into something really special. Um, so I have my hopes up about fun assets that we could get. But for now, like, we love Lowry. We're going to support Lowry, whatever his decision may be. But it does seem like if he's not moving on in the midst of the season, it, he will be gone uh, in the offseason. And so we'll, at that time, we will look back on the great career with the Raptors that Lowry has had. Yeah, uh, I guess raptor career obitch pending potentially i will the toronto housing market is i believe very high at this moment with some people predicting a bubble crash so we'll know when we know but it could be as simple as kyle is not living in toronto right now he is probably just trying to get the most value he ever can get out of his Toronto property. If he wanted to return to Toronto, it would obviously be for a very short-term contract at this point in his career, so renting would be an option. But mo most guys just they seem to want to have a fresh start in their final crack and give themselves the best chance they can to win. I mean, we just saw that with Brady. I guess that would be probably the most similar comparison in terms of spending all your career in one place and then just rolling the dice with something else towards the end i get it really if you want the trade or the free agency walk really i guess boils down to what your playoff hopes and expectations for the raptors are so yours are evidently pretty low and small yeah just for me personally like i understand the value of winning but especially this season, because it's so like abstract and so not the norm for what the Raptors are. They're playing in Tampa Bay. Like you just, this is like a throwaway season in a normal season. I'd say, yes, going to the playoffs is something to build upon, but for sure, they're not making it past the second round. Just what this team is right now. The ceiling is not greater than the second round team. So why go there and why continue to have these people away from their homes, away from their families? Why not get value? and come back fresh in Toronto next season, ready to go. Uh, and, and just have, cause you already have this squad that you're willing to build upon. So then why not 
again, cold analytical side says bring in some new assets, some more pieces that you can build with maybe a, a, a draft pick or two and go from there because uh, I think the value of making the playoffs this year for the Raptors is just diminished as opposed to previous years. For sure. But I still, I don't think this team is at a place where you can overlook the importance of contributing to team culture with consecutive playoff appearances, because I don't think the Raptors have become one of those like mainstay staple, you know, they're going to be a contender teams that like, I think this franchise has the potential to reach like the Celtics and Lakers level with all of the love that they can get when uh, they continuously win. So I think, having like more playoff appearances and like being a playoff threat just helps build that culture that allows them to have the seasons they're kind of having right now and had last year where even without like a superstar just it's a locker room that finds a way to get it done i i worry that there's something in the momentum of that and that if it halts it might be harder to get back than you might think and also with especially siakam i want all the playoff experience he can get under his belt and in his resume so there's i want him to have that second round appearance and maybe maybe this isn't the year he gets it done in the second round but come later years hopefully all that contributes to him eventually putting it together i'm i don't disagree with you i think for sure there's something to be said for what you're saying i'd love the idea of like a thibel and an ob pairing and just like double teaming every and like those lanky arms just catching everything but to make the opposing argument for why the raptors should be banking still on making a playoff run i guess the the key piece that is missing here is like i think they can make the playoffs without kyle yeah. and whatever they bring in could actually contribute and uh, they might actually, because they've been very successful in the last two seasons without Kyle in the lineup. So maybe they do have enough without Kyle to still make the playoffs and compete. Obviously, Kyle puts them a level above with some of the ancillary stuff that he does and the attitude that he brings, right? The leadership. But Fred has more than proven this season that he can take over that workload. And so, again, cold analytical side says that maybe if we do get a Thibel back or whatever, another asset, because if, if he goes to like a Denver, we would have to get a Gary Harris back to match salaries. And Gary Harris is a productive player. He's not a great player by any means, but he's a productive player. And that could actually still keep the Raptors in playoff contention, but also getting that value in return. So just, it'll happen when it happens, but interesting to see going forward, what the move will exactly will be. Okay. The last bit of basketball uh, stuff to mention is the G League playoff bracket starts today with the Raptors 905 being the one seed <laughs> and they will play G League Ignite. So really, really fun, exciting game. That's at 345 today, uh, Eastern time. So if anyone wants to catch that near the end of your workday and then uh, there will be a couple other games going on, but that's the key one, of course, for us as Toronto fans and will be interesting to follow. I'll try and flip on the second half of that game after uh, my workday is over. Um, and yeah, that's it for basketball. I do want to quickly switch over and get a little preview this week for the Champions League being back after 
uh, another week off and, and we get to see the second leg of these uh, quarterfinal matchups. Juventus is in the hole right now against Porto. Uh, and so is Barcelona after their drubbing uh, by PSG. So look for both of those teams to make a move. Will Messi and Ronaldo have enough to uh, help their teams over t- overcome their uh, their deficits? I say no, but we will find out. And uh, for my boy, my housemate, he's a big Dortmund fan. I'm hoping that they can hold off Sevilla in their second leg uh, because they suffered a brutal 2 nothing blown lead to uh Bayern Munich in the Der Classica this weekend on Saturday my friend he would tell me he's like you know those Leafs fans who are like whenever I watch they lose so they don't watch he's kind of like that right now with with Dortmund where it was two nothing in like 15 minutes because they got two like counterattack kind of chance goals against Bayern he puts it on and then the rest of the game is pure domination by Bayern they catch up by halftime it's 2-2 at halftime and then they end up winning 4-2 Lewandowski is just like a machine he just scores that's all he does he's he's like 39 now and he just scores goals um yeah so I felt bad for him so hopefully they can get the uh they can pull out a good result against Sevilla this week and um he can have a, a Dortmund team that's moving on in the Champions League uh, the last thing I want to say is uh, NFTs, NBA Top Shot. It's probably a little too late, but uh, it is exploding. There was an article in CBC News yesterday for our American friends. That's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. It's the biggest public news outlet in our beautiful country. And uh, yeah, it's it's taking off, not just NBA Top Shot, but NFT artwork. And uh, yeah, it's taken yeah. off. People are It's immensely popular. Lots of money in it. I don't quite understand it, but saw like Kings of Leon released an NFT album. Um, someone I follow on Twitter sold a picture of their boobs for $2,000 as an NFT, which I don't understand, but weird, interesting world developing all yeah. the time. Um, congrats. You've been talking about Top Shop for months now and it's cool to have heard about it from you before seeing it blossom in the public. So congrats on that. Thanks. I, uh, I pulled a RJ Barrett. So I, I managed to snag a rare pack yesterday in the drop in the uh, drop and I got a RJ Barrett rising stars card. So uh, hopefully I'll show that off. And then I was thinking um, there was a pre-order a couple weeks ago. I'm going to get it next weekend. So maybe next Monday I can open up a pack on the show oh. and, uh, I don't know how it'll work, but maybe we'll get some some share screen action going on Zoom and post a little clip for those who are interested. Um, hopefully, I pull something nice. But yeah, just get in on the craze, right? A little bit of extra content for you folks because uh, we've been loving the audience. Appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And uh, yeah, just wanted to provide a little bit of excitement on a Monday, right? Let's do it. I'm All right, curious. cool. All right. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Uh, I think that's going to do it for today. Um, Max, if you have anything left to say, I throw it over to you. Um, Just the usual sports next door signing off.